Good evening. Uh, tonight, as we continue our journey through the story of the Bible, we come to Exodus chapter 6 to 11. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to it? There should be a Bible in the pews if you don't have one of your own with you. Uh, but just before we set the scene, or I set the scene, I'd like to ask you a question. And the question is this. What have you discovered or learnt about God recently? What have you personally discovered or learnt about God recently? What new insights regarding the character of God have you come to appreciate? Because you could argue that there is nothing more important than an increasing knowledge of God. And in these next 20 or 25 minutes, uh, we're going to meet some people who gained a deeper understanding of God. But for some of them, it was an incredibly unsettling experience. And in Exodus 5, Moses and his older brother Aaron had gone to see Pharaoh, but it didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. And in response to their visit, Pharaoh issues new orders confirming that straw will no longer be supplied for the production of bricks by the Israelite slaves. They will now have to collect the straw for themselves, but the brick quota doesn't alter, doesn't change. So in other words, they're going to have to work harder, but still produce the same volume. And when the slaves question the new requirements, Pharaoh comes back at them and basically says, you're lazy. And effectively, he blames Moses and Aaron for the new requirement. And that doesn't go down well. And so some of the Israelite representatives go to find Moses and Aaron and they give them a piece of their mind. And they say to Moses and Aaron, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. And so things didn't really go the way that Moses and Aaron had probably imagined. Pharaoh has dismissed them and now their own people are hacked off by them. It's not good. But as we come into chapter 6, God thankfully speaks into their discouragement. And he reminds Moses who he is. I am the Lord. And he reminds Moses of the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he reassures Moses that he has heard the cries and the complaints and the groans of the Israelites in Egypt. And it strikes me that these are three things that we constantly need to know and be reminded of on a regular basis. And if you hear nothing else tonight, just hear this. Remember who God is. Remember what God has promised. And remember that he hears your heart cry. And as part of this new conversation, God then gives Moses a word for the Israelites in their despair. And it's found in Exodus 6, verses 6 to 8. And these are incredible life-giving words. And I'd like us to read them together. Exodus 6 Starting at verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. 
I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession for I am the Lord. And you see, top and tailed, or topped and tailed by who God is, this message contains seven amazing promises. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as your own. I will be your God. I will bring you. I will give you. And when Moses heard that, he must have really looked forward to sharing it with the Israelites because this is an amazing thing God has said. And yet, when he does, he's tuned out. The Israelites simply refuse to listen to him. Their current circumstances and recent developments have led them to ignore the word of God. They choose to dismiss the truth and the hope that God in this situation speaks into their lives. They're just not prepared to hear it. Which kind of still happens today. God continues to speak words of life into our lives. And sometimes because what we're dealing with, what we're going through. And for everybody sitting here in this church tonight, that will be a different thing. But because of what you are going through, there are times, even though God is still speaking, that you struggle to hear. And Moses must have been feeling pretty rubbish at this point. And so he says to God, who's actually now asking them to go back and see Pharaoh again. He says to God, listen, if the Israelites won't even listen to me, then there's no chance that Pharaoh's going to hear a single word I say anymore. And so God speaks to Moses again. Only, and I think this is brilliant, if not a little strange. He agrees with Moses that Pharaoh isn't going to listen. In fact, God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not listen. And that cannot have made any sense. And it still doesn't for lots of people. Like what is the point in trying to negotiate with someone who's not only unwilling to listen, but is actually unable to listen it doesn't tend to work when it operates like that but immediately after God has said that that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart he also tells Moses that he will bring the Israelites out of Egypt and so Moses and Aaron must have thought well this is going to be interesting Pharaoh isn't going to listen and yet the Israelites are leaving Egypt So how is that all going to work? So anyway, off 80-year-old Moses and 83-year-old Aaron go. They go back to see Pharaoh. But God gives them a miracle to perform just in case the Pharaoh asks them to prove their credentials. Aaron is to throw his staff down on the ground and it's going to turn into a snake. And right enough, the first thing that happens whenever they get another audience with the king is that Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it turns into a snake or a giant reptile of some sort. 
Rather disturbingly, Pharaoh's sorcerers are able able to duplicate the trick. But rather impressively, Aaron's snake swallows up the rest. So in terms of this visit, it's now advantage Moses and Aaron. And then right on cue, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. Right on cue. Just like God said. Pharaoh's heart becomes hard and he doesn't listen. And then, for the next four and a half chapters, it all kicks off. We read of ten plagues. Or to be more accurate, we read of a God who pollutes an entire nation's water supply, turning it to blood. We read of a God who causes frogs to infest land and homes, knowing that the frog is a sacred symbol of Egypt, and therefore anyone who killed a frog would be punishable by death. It was a master stroke on God's part. We encounter a God who causes men and animals to break out in festering boils. And we encounter a God who, and this may sound blasphemous, but we encounter a God like Herod in the New Testament who authorizes the death of children and young people. A God who authorizes the death of the firstborn son in every family and household. And for me, these chapters are uncomfortable. This is horrible history. And therefore it's no wonder that these chapters of the Bible, and many like them in the Old Testament, are sometimes avoided. They're skipped. For the simple reason that God at face value appears to some as a frightening, uncontrollable, vindictive and harsh God. Philip Yancey, well, relatively well-known Christian author, in one of his books confesses that when he read the Old Testament, he used to look for ways of making God more accessible and less fierce. And when Glenis and I studied early church history during our two years in London with Oasis Trust, one of the people that we came across was a man called Marcion who during the second century came to the conclusion, conclusion similar to Gnosticism, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. That the wrathful Hebrew God of the Old Testament was a tyrant, whereas the God of the New Testament was this all-forgiving God. And Marcionism had its appeal and had certain popularity, yet it was very quickly dismissed as heresy. And yet there is a challenge in recognizing that the Old Testament does contain something like 600 explicit references to violence, many of which are linked directly to God. So how do we reconcile That with the non-violence that was preached by Jesus in the New Testament. How do you come to terms with a God who on the one hand cares deeply about a bird that smashes against the windscreen of your car. 
And yet on the other hand, a God who empowers the likes of Moses and Aaron to inflict horrendous suffering on a group of people via ten plagues which increase with intensity. How do you deal with that? There's nothing comfortable or comforting about reading the Bible at times. And as I've read the early chapters of Exodus in preparation for this evening, and I've tried to imagine what it must have been like to be on the receiving end of these ten plagues, I have found it uncomfortable and slightly disturbing. But then again, God's ways are definitely not my ways. God moves and God operates in ways that we can never predict And certainly in ways we don't always desire. But that is his prerogative. He is God. We cannot put him in a box. We cannot domesticate him. We cannot tame him. God may come across as a wild and a mysterious other. An unsettling God. As Sarah referred to him this morning. But I am who I am, is how he revealed himself to Moses. I will be who I will be. And either you bow the knee in reverence, awe and submission, or you kick against the reality of who God is, and you live with the consequences. I know some of you were at Chris Wright's recent Livingstone lecture at Belfast Bible College, which dealt with the religious violence in the Old Testament and in particular he dealt with Joshua's conquest of Canaan and it is hard as we will discover to get your head round some of that disturbing material and so there is a sense of mystery in how God works out his purposes but that's okay but we must recognise and accept The fact that there is nothing and no one who can stand in God's ways. His power and his judgment are real. And therefore, in a world gone bad, in a world that is broken and fallen and dysfunctional and sin infested, there is always going to be mess as God works out his purposes. As his unfolding story of redemption is played out. It's not always going to make sense to us. It's not always going to sit well with us. People were intent on standing in God's ways. Always have been. Just like Pharaoh. Just like the Egyptians. Determined to stand against him. Determined not only to oppose him. But to oppose his people. And so God being God. Can't turn a blind eye. He can't just walk away. And therefore at various times. And in various ways. God's power and judgment is exposed for all to see. And here in these chapters we find ten examples of this. It's my only way of getting my head around this is to see it like this. We find ten prime examples of this. But it is not just for the sake of it. There is a reason. There is a purpose. God's purpose in the ten plagues was to reveal himself. To establish his identity. To make himself known. Yes, how he does it is unsettling. 
But this is the reason. It's explicit in the text as we're about to see. And in the drama of these unnerving events and chapters, there are four characters, there are four groups of people who are given a unique opportunity via these ten plagues to discover more about God for themselves. Ten times God intervenes on a scale so massive that not a single person in the drama is left in any doubt who God is. To start with, there's Moses. And you could argue, surely Moses didn't need any more convincing. I mean, given what had happened to him at the burning bush, etc., surely he was clear on who God is. But in Exodus 10 to God clarifies the purpose for Moses in these ten plagues. That you may tell your children, and you may tell your grandchildren, how I dealt, here's the word, Harshly, God accepts this. How I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed signs among them. Why? That you may know, Moses, that I am God. Watch and discover, Moses, who I am and then tell your kids and tell your grandkids. And the second group of people are the Israelites. And in Exodus 6, as we looked at a moment ago, when God spoke to them via Moses, he says, yes, I will do those seven things. Then, God says, you will know that I am God. And surely as they, the children of Israel, watched these spectacular events occur, their understanding of God was profoundly intensified. God was letting them as a people group know who he was in breathtaking ways. Third group, the Egyptians. The oppressors. In Exodus 7, God says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And by the seventh plague, which is hail, God says this, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. The Egyptians are being enlightened. But it's a deeply disturbing journey of discovery for that particular people group. And finally, there's Pharaoh. Now, back in Exodus 5, Whenever Moses and Aaron went to visit Pharaoh for the first time, and whenever Moses and Aaron said, God has told us to tell you to let my people go, Pharaoh's response was this, Who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord, so get out of here. Two chapters later, we discover that Pharaoh is about to find out because God speaks into his life via Moses and says that as a result of all that is about to happen, as the result of the ten plagues, you will know, Pharaoh, that I am the Lord. God wants to be known. He doesn't want to be feared or avoided or dismissed. And in the land of Egypt three and a half thousand years ago, where people and animals were killed by hailstones, And where a thick blanket of darkness descended for 72 hours without any light. God was letting everyone in this drama know in no uncertain terms who he was. 
And that's the critical purpose of the plagues. That's the reason behind them. That God wanted people to know him. That those people who were impacted by his demonstrations of power and judgment would learn something about his character. And therefore, as a result of these horrendous events, many people discovered new insights and realities about God. And as we read this story centuries later, we actually are gifted with the ability to cultivate, maintain, or restore a proper notion about God. Because as I said at the beginning, there's possibly nothing more important than an increasing knowledge of God. Nothing more important of having a proper concept of God, a book we've referred to many times, the knowledge of the holy by Tozer. What comes into our minds when when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so how do you see God this evening? How do you see the God of Exodus 7 to 11, the God of the Old Testament. How do you see the God of the Bible? Because your concept of him will profoundly affect your response to him. And based on these moments, I'm going to give you seven insights into God. Now, it's four minutes past eight. We'll be done by ten past. Okay? But here are seven insights, discoveries, Truths about God based on these moments. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm sure there's many here who could add more based on these. But let me start with the obvious. God is real. Do you know those who witnessed these events must have been left in no doubt that God existed. Okay, not everyone bowed the knee in worship. But nobody, nobody could deny his reality and presence. Secondly, God is incredibly powerful And dangerous. Any being who can cause this level of mayhem and destruction to life and nature clearly has unlimited power and ability. And although evil is also real and it's also powerful because those of you who know this story will know that the magicians and the sorcerers in Egypt were able to duplicate the first two signs, blood and frogs. But compared To God's power there is no contest. The magicians soon ran out of ideas when it came to copying the plagues of gnats, etc., etc. God is powerful. God is dangerous. Thirdly, God controls creation. He is the God of the whole created order. And therefore, in the ten plagues, he's able to influence, he's able to mess with water, weather, insects, animal health, and the light of the sun, God is able to bring all of those under his command, under his authority, because he controls creation. Fourthly, God sticks by his word. One of the recurring themes that's been coming out of this series is that when God promises something, he sees it through. God said, I'll rescue my people. God said that he would empower Moses and Aaron. God said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And it all happened. God is faithful and his word is true. It's trustworthy. It's certain and it's sure. Fifthly, God cares about his people. 
The Egyptians and the Israelites soon realized this, that God was this interested in his people, so interested that he would step in in such a dramatic way. He knew their struggles. He felt their pain. He sensed their frustration. And he responded accordingly. Why? Because his people meant so much to him. And following on from that, sixthly, God hears the cries of the oppressed, the enslaved, the exploited. God is a compassionate God who hates injustice. He notices tears. He is not distant. He's not removed. He's not remote from those who suffer. And finally, God is an awesome judge. The Bible says to fall into the hands of God, to fall into the hands of the living God, is a dreadful thing. These ten plagues were truly dreadful. But although this dimension of God's character does offend some, the reality is that whenever people reject him, whenever people dismiss his word, whenever people stand against him and choose to worship other gods, just like Pharaoh did, just like the Egyptians did, then according to scripture, judgment is inevitable. God wants to be known. He is these things. This is what God is like. And sometimes in his desire to be known, God has to scream loudly. And three and a half thousand years ago, God turned up the volume to a deafening level and revealed himself in no uncertain terms. And that for me, was the purpose of the ten plagues. That's what so much of the Old Testament is all about. Even the bits we struggle with. God wanting to reveal his identity in order that people would know who he is. And of course it is hard for us to stomach this at times. It is unsettling, but please don't miss the point that God will sometimes go to extreme lengths to be known ultimately in Jesus but that's rushing way ahead and one of if not the core reason why God wants to be known why does God want to be known yes for relationship but he wants to be known in order that we will respond in worship 43 times in Exodus 4 to 12 God says, let my people go. On 15 of those occasions, he explains why. So that they may worship me. And as you and I reflect on who God is, based on these chapters, as you and I reflect on those seven insights, and as your vision of God is enlarged, and I hope today as a result of not just this evening, but maybe this morning as well, As your vision of God is enlarged. We didn't learn this morning about who Moses was. We learned this morning about who God is. And as your vision of God is enlarged, my hope and my prayer is that you will go from here to worship. And that God will deliver you 
from whatever it is that is holding you back from worshipping him. For the Israelites, slavery was getting in the way. But what is it for you that sometimes gets in the way of your worship of God? What I'd like to do just as we close is I would like you just in the silence to consider some of those things about who God is. What is your concept of God? What is your understanding of God? How is your understanding of God increasing? How do you reconcile the God of these moments with the God of these moments and with the God of grace? How do you see God? Because remember how you see God will profoundly affect your response to God. Take a few moments just in silence to reflect on who God is.